First, I want to thank you for being here this morning, those who were able to come during the first hour and uh, interact with Bruce, and really even before that, through your faithful prayers throughout this process, um, this is a decision that you've been a part of by joining us in your prayers. Um, we want you to know that uh, the question came up, and let me kind of clarify, because maybe more than one person was asking this, is, is Brian being asked to do everything that Mark is currently doing? The answer is no. Um, not sure that person exists other than Mark. Um, Brian is being asked to be the worship pastor, and if you will remember back in the spring, we gave out a job description for that role as defined by the elders. If you would like to have that or you misplaced it or don't have it anymore and you want to have that, let us know. We are glad to give it to you. Because that's the template from which we worked off of in terms of who we were looking for. And so he's a part of, he would be a part of that pastoral staff team with his responsibility as the worship pastor. Um, with that being said, next week we have what we call around here a vote of affirmation. And let me explain that since it may not be a term some of you are familiar with. Um, as a result of the fact that we as an elder team took the responsibility to partner with a search team to present to you a candidate that we have vetted and believed to be consistent with what we were looking for and uh, a man of character and faith in Christ that would lead and be a part of that the pastoral staff um, and do that well. And so what we are presenting to you is our unanimous decision, our unanimous recommendation. And it's in partnership with the search team and their unanimous support of that recommendation. But you've been a part of this process all along, and we ask you to continue to be a part of the process, like you were this morning through your interaction, maybe tonight at the picnic. And then next week we have the vote of affirmation where you are asked to affirm the recommendation of the elders, or you can express a concern at which we look at every one of them to ensure that there's not something that you've identified that we haven't already looked at, okay? And so that's how the process works, and we want you to be a part of that. If you're a member of Melanie Park, then next Sunday after the service, you'll just stick around. We'll hand out ballots like we've done in the past and ask for your vote of affirmation. If you have a current concern, you can express it at that time, and we'll look at each of those and consider them uh, uh, with all seriousness. So hope you will do that. With that being said, I'm going to kind of bring closure to this uh, discussion. We spent a lot of time on it this morning before we open God's Word, so let's go before the Lord together, if we could. God, we just thank you for how you've been at work uh, through this process with Brian and Ashley and the search team and the elders. Uh, we have asked uh, from the very beginning, and this has been the prayer of the church, it's been the prayer of the elders, it's been the prayer of the search team, it's been the prayer of Brian and Ashley. And that is, Lord, would you please consistently confirm or clearly redirect? We recognize that we sincerely desire to only go where you lead. And the only way we know that is as if you consistently confirm or clearly redirect. And Lord, we believe you brought us to this place today to present Brian and his family as the next worship pastor at Melanie Park Church. Lord, we know that there is one more step remaining and some time between now and then that you can work to continue to consistently confirm or clearly redirect, and so our prayer is the same. We love you. 
We trust you, and we want to follow you. You know us better than we even know ourselves. So we submit to your guidance. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Okay, if you would, turn to uh, James, and let's uh, continue looking at the, the letter of James. As we talked about last week, the growing persecution in Jerusalem has caused uh, the Christians who lived there to be scattered all throughout Judea and Samaria. They're literally running for their lives. And so James writes this letter to those who are now living in places that are not their home, knowing that everywhere they go, they take their witness for Christ with them. And so James is wanting to encourage them to stand strong in their faith as they face all kinds of difficulties and trials along the way. It's an encouragement, as we talked about last week, that's based on the assurance of God's provision that tells us that that we are adequate and equipped for the demands and stresses in life, whatever they may be, because God is sufficient to meet our every need. Their faith is being tested, but James is reminding them that God's faithfulness is what gives them the strength to endure. But I think another aspect of the testing that they are experiencing is related to the world in which they now live. Part of the struggle that these Christians are facing is their ability to hold firm to their conviction when they're surrounded by compromise. See, living in Jerusalem, as I see it, was kind of like growing up in the church. Their life revolved around a common religious practice. Everyone grew up knowing the same Bible studies, the same stories that were told from generation to generation. Most of the people shared a common worldview, which doesn't mean that everybody was a Christian or that everybody believed in and followed God. But even if they didn't, they knew how to make it look like they did. Because a religious lifestyle was a cultural norm in Jerusalem. And so in many ways, Jerusalem is like the Bible belt of the ancient world. But now, these Christians have become exiles in a foreign land. A land very, very different than their life back in Jerusalem. Their religious beliefs that once helped them fit in, now is the very thing that causes them to be set apart. You see, believing in just one God was not the cultural norm in the world in which they now live. In fact, the Roman culture, that culture which they now live in as they make homes in Judea and Samaria, that culture promoted the attitude of religious tolerance. In fact, the Roman rulership encouraged its citizens to worship a variety of gods. In the absence of an absolute truth, you were encouraged to embrace a diversity of beliefs. Instead of one God to meet your greatest need, you were encouraged to worship many gods to meet a variety of pleasures. So part of the struggle 
for these early Christians was the challenge to be true to their faith in Christ in a world in which they were surrounded by compromise. In fact, I think that may be the central theme of the letter James now writes to these Christians. He's going to cover a lot of topics, but if you wanted to, to drill it down to one thing, I think it's that. How do you be faithful in a world where you're surrounded by compromise? Now, we won't go too far into this, but let me show you what I mean. Turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And I want to show you how this comes out later on, and we'll talk about it more. But listen to what he says in verse 4. Speaking to this audience that is now scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, he says, you adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Then go down to verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. I think this is one of the reasons this letter is so relevant to us today. James is admonishing his, his reader not to play a religious game. Professing to believe in Jesus, but the, living a lifestyle that doesn't follow that profession. That's why in this t- context he calls them adulterers. Because they're living a divided life. Double-minded, expressing one thing, but then practicing something completely different our home group did a study not too long ago called um, for the life of the world the letters to the exiles it was a really good study and as i think about that title and some of the topics that were discovered i think about the letter of james because i think that's what he's doing he's writing to exiles who are in a land that's not their home and he's trying to help them understand what it means to be a light to the world around them And my hope and prayer as we walk through James together is that we have instruction and understanding of what it looks like for us to live faithfully for Christ when we're surrounded by compromise. Because we have that in common. So go back to chapter 1 if you would. I want to pick up where we left off last. I'm actually going to go back to some of the verses that we covered. So if you would, uh, follow with me beginning in verse 2 of chapter 1. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to you. Last week we talked about how enduring trials builds your faith muscles. We gain strength to endure because of the faithfulness of our God. Apart from Christ, we don't have what it takes. But because of Christ, we have everything we need. That's why James says at the end of verse 4, we are perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But then he turns around in verse 5 and says, but if anyone lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God. So as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, okay, James, which one is it? (laughs) Do we lack nothing or do we lack something? 
And the answer is yes. <laughs> yes, and let me explain why. The Bible is clear. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Those are the exact words Jesus spoke to his disciples. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. But he goes on to say that if you abide in me and abide in my commandments, you will have all you need. So, you have all you need. But having all you need and knowing how to use what you have are two different things. Having all you need and knowing how to use what you have are two different things. For example, if you wanted to build a table, and say, I wanted to help you. And so I'm going to supply you with tools that you might need when you build this table. I might give you a saw. I might give you a router, a, a planer, an orbital sander. There's a really handy tool that you might like. It's called a, a biscuit joiner. Okay? How many of you ever heard of a biscuit joiner? A few of you have heard of it. Well, I can give you all these tools, but does that mean you're going to be able to build a table? Some of you don't even know what a biscuit joiner is, much less how to use it, right? Well, the same is true for us. Because of who we are in Christ, we have everything we need. We see that in James. You can see it in 2 Peter 1.3, where it says that God's divine power has granted you everything, everything you need to live a godly life. In other words, you have all the tools, but you need wisdom to know how to use them. And that's why James says, ask God for wisdom. Ask him to help you understand how to use everything that he's made available so that you're adequate and equipped for every good work. And notice how God responds. He says, he will give generously and without reproach. You see, asking God for help is not a sign of weakness. It's the evidence of trust. He's not going to belittle you or be critical of the questions you ask. He is longing for you to invite him in. As a parent, we understand this, right? Especially as our kids get older and they become young adults. <laughs> we have to be careful not to insert ourselves into places that we're not wanted. Because if they don't want our advice, then they're probably not going to listen to our advice. Oh, but the day that that son or daughter comes to you and says, Hey, Dad, I've got an important decision. I'd really like your input on that decision. Any loving parent would enter into that situation and give generously and without reproach. Despite however many bad decisions they made at that point, you long to help them have the wisdom to make good decisions from that moment on. And that's the same heart that God has for us. God wants to help us make wise decisions. Now, you can fumble around and try to figure it out, you know, what a biscuit joiner is, all you want to. Or you can ask God, and he will give generously and without reproach. We depend. We need, we cannot walk in faithful obedience without his wisdom. But James qualifies it, doesn't he? By saying, but let him ask in faith without any doubt. And he gives this great word picture that we can all relate to. We can see it in our mind's eye when he says, because those who doubt are like 
the waves of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And if you're like me, you can see this, right? All these waves that just going in random directions. It's, it's, it's un- unpredictable. It's unstable. Here one minute. Then the next. Another place. You hear one sermon, you think, oh, that sounds good. I like that. Then you hear another sermon that says something completely different. You think, oh, I actually like that better. I'm going to go with that one. Searching for truth but not really, truly trusting in God. In the end, doubt creates a fracture in your faith. And a divided faith becomes a divided loyalty. I think what James is addressing here is the the difference between living according to a worldly wisdom and the wisdom of God. And the instability that comes when we waffle between the two, at times, trusting in God and, and seeking His Word and looking to His guidance. And then at other times, following the world, going our own way, doing our own thing. Like waves, driven and tossed by the wind. Here one minute, there the next, back and forth. And James says they're double-minded. And unstable in all their ways. That word double-minded is a really interesting word. John Bunyan once said something that I thought sounds great. He said, it, he describes it as a man facing both ways. Double-minded. A man facing both ways. The Greek word literally means double-souled. I think it's the biblical description of a divided heart. It's a divided heart. And here's the key. James is addressing the issue of spiritual integrity. The conviction that God's will is the best possible outcome for my life. Doubt is the belief that there just might be something better. Doubt is ultimately a distrust in the character of God. It's important to understand that that what James is describing here is a pattern of instability. Not just a moment in time, because look, we all have doubts, right? From time to time, we all have doubts. I'm encouraged when I read a verse in the Bible like the man who said to Jesus, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Help me in my doubts. But that's different, because that's a man who's going to the Lord saying, I need your help. I want to be strong. I depend on you. James is talking about here is a man who is playing a religious game. Someone who has a a lifestyle of divided loyalty, a pattern of instability. Look at how he continues in verse 9. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. And let the rich man glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he'll pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. I think in an effort to help us understand the wisdom of God and the difference between that and the wisdom of the world, James now kind of focuses in on a divine perspective versus worldly values. And he does it by explaining what I'll call a paradox of faith. G.K. Chesterton is an old pastor who describes a paradox of faith as a truth standing on its head 
shouting for your attention. <laughs> Isn't that a good picture in your mind? That's what a paradox of faith is. It's a truth standing on its head, shouting for your attention. And we see them all throughout the Scripture. Things like the first will be last and the last will be first. Paradox of faith. Another one is when you're weak, then you're strong. It's a paradox of faith. It's a truth. Standing on its head, shouting for your attention. And that's the idea behind what James says in verse 9 when he says, A man of humble means should glory in his high position. In other words, a low position from the world's perspective is actually a high position from God's point of view. The Bible says God opposes the proud. gives grace to the humble. You see, The world is most impressed with successful people. It values the financially secure, the the socially elite. And very often, those are the same people who have all their needs met to the point that they really don't need God. They may be materially rich, but they are spiritually bankrupt. And yet, very often, In our culture, those are the people we idolize. And James doesn't want those who don't meet that standard of the world's success to feel unimportant or insignificant by comparison. James doesn't want any of us to buy into the lie that prosperity brings happiness. Tanner and I were playing golf recently and talking about just the challenges of raising a young family limited budget and just kind of making ends meet and we've all been there and probably all of us thought at that time that boy if we could just advance in our careers and and make some more money and and reach a point where we're a little more financially secure so we don't have to worry about those things then that's when it really happens and then when we get to that point and we make as much money as we think we need we look back on the days when we were barely scratching by and we realize those were the best days ever had each other, trusted in the Lord, and it was good. Very often those of humble means have a humble heart. They look to God. They pray for His provision. They find that He's faithful, and it gives them the strength to endure. But the successful and the secure very often find the security in something other than God. That's why James turns to the rich man. And he says, let the rich in this world glory in their humiliation. In other words, let them cultivate a heart of humility. Intentionally, purposefully cultivate a heart of humility. Using their gain to be a blessing to others. To see humble generosity as the antidote to selfish pride. So if you've got a lot, then be good at giving it away. That's what James is saying here. You remember in the book of Acts, when we saw the early church, one of the things that we learned is that that not one of them had need. Remember that? Out of all the people, we learned thousands by that time who had come into the Christian faith, not one of them had need. God always blesses one as a means of provision for another. So that those who have an abundance become a blessing to those who have a need. That's the way he designed it. But if we lose that perspective, James says it can change in an instant. 
And we know that's true from Acts. Ananias and Sapphira, they changed in an instant. Instead of using God's provision to serve people, they tried to use it to impress people. And it was gone in an instant. Like the flowering grass, it faded away. Now, if you've taken the summer memory challenge and looked at Isaiah 40 this summer, then what James says in verse 11 should sound very familiar to you. In fact, I think he had Isaiah 40 in mind when he wrote those words. Because in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6, it says, All flesh is grass. It's loveliness like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely, people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. The only thing we possess in this life that is eternally secure are the promises of God. The word of God stands forever. The only thing that we possess that is eternally secure are the promises of God. And our stability is based on our ability to apply those truths in how we live. That's why we need wisdom. We want to live with the conviction that God's will is the best possible outcome for my life. And not be distracted by the world that's always telling us there's a better way. There's goodness hidden outside of his design. James looked at both sides of the coin on this one, I believe. And I think he talks to both those who are in prosperity and those who are in poverty. And he can see both of them as a test of faith. And the one who is of humble means can feel insignificant and unimportant. The, the one who is of high means can feel too important. And both of them can look to the world to find value and purpose. And he says, either one of you would be wrong if you did. Look at what he says in verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And when you read verse 12, I want you to look at trials with a broad definition, okay? In fact, I want you, when you see the word trials, I want you to think of any difficulty that threatens the faithfulness of following Christ. So if we were to read it uh, again, we would say, Blessed are the ones who persevere through difficulties that threaten their work, walk with Christ. And so we go on and learn that that blessing that he promises is reserved for those who stay true to their faith, even when they're surrounded by compromise. That's the point of what James is trying to help us understand here, that there's a blessing in store for those who persevere, standing strong in their faith, when they live in a world surrounded by compromise. And I think if you look at verse 12, he describes that in three major parts. Approval, reward, and relationship. That's the unfolding of the blessing, if you will. Approval, reward, and relationship. James says, for once he has been approved. Approved by who? Approved by God, right? <laughs> He's the only one who has an opinion that matters. And you're approved by Him. This is an approval that leads 
to eternal life, an approval based on your faith in Jesus Christ. That divine wisdom leads to divine approval. And Jesus is the light that shows us the way. He's the path in which we follow to understand the truth that God has revealed. It's the belief that, that God is right when he says that salvation is found in Christ alone. That there's no other name under heaven given unto men by which we can be saved. If that's your belief and you are centered on Christ, then that's the place that you find your approval in the eyes of God. Not because of your works. Not because of your deeds. Because of your faith. By faith, you receive the crown of life. That's the promised reward. And when I see this, that description in this context, I don't picture a royal crown. I picture a victory wreath. Kind of like the Olympians wore back in ancient times. And I actually believe that's what James has in mind here. Because he's talking about the one who perseveres to the end. He's describing the one who finishes the race. He says, when you do, you receive the crown of life. The promise of eternal life. That's the reward. And it's promised, as he says, to all those who love him. A love we have based on a relationship we experience through faith in Christ alone. A relationship built on trust. Relying on the wisdom of God. Instead of going our own way. It's a path that leads us to the reward, the approval, because of the relationship. And that's where James wants us to live. Now, as we look at this passage, I, I think there's some incredible truths to hang on to. But here's a question that maybe we can consider together and you can think through this week as we think about what James says. And the question is this. How do we finish well in the world in which we live? How do we finish well in the world in which we live? How do we, put it another way, how do we faithfully follow Christ in a world filled with compromise? And I think that's what James is speaking to here, so that should be the question that we then consider for ourselves as we think about what he's communicating. Let me offer a couple of things for your consideration. Maybe this will be in a way that you can remember it, okay? The first one is this. In order to live faithfully for Christ in a fallen world, you must, number one, filter out fake news. <laughs> filter out fake news. Now, that's a term that's kind of been added to our vernacular in recent years, right? We all know what that means, fake news. It's fake news is false information intended to make you believe something that really isn't true. It's propaganda, right? Typically, it's applied to a political context. I assure you, that's not what I'm doing here. I'm applying that term to a spiritual context, and here's why. Worldly wisdom is fake news. Worldly wisdom is fake news. And Satan is the editor-in-chief. He's been spewing out lies from the very begin beginning. It's his propaganda. We see it in the garden, intending to make you believe something that isn't true, that, that there's something better outside of God's design. Yeah, I know that's what God said, but did you know? 
you don't filter out fake news, you will start believing Satan's lies. That's a promise. If you don't filter out fake news, you will start believing Satan's lies. I sent a text message out to a few people this week and just asked them. I said, here's kind of what I'm thinking for Sunday. Give me some examples of what you see in our world today that would represent fake news from a spiritual perspective. Here's some things that were given to me. Fake news. Love is love. As long as two people consent, then it's okay. It's fake news. It's not true. More makes you happy. Debt is okay. Security is found in prosperity. Not true. Trust your feelings. Live for the moment. You be you. It's fake news. It's misinformation intended to make you believe something that is not true. More than that, it's the enemy's attempt to destroy God's original design and all the goodness built into it by trying to convince you that there's something better outside of it. And in doing so, he destroys the very character of the one who made it right in the first place. This is an assault against God. It's not about us. This is about him and who you're going to choose to follow. So that brings me to my second point. If you want to filter fake news, then you've got to rely on real truth. If you're going to filter fake news, then you've got to rely on real truth. And real truth can only come from a sovereign God. There's one source. That's the good news. It's real simple. <laughs> real truth has to come from a real God. I was reading the account of Daniel this week, and it's very familiar. You remember when Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and it troubled him, and so he asked his magicians, his, uh, the spiritual people of that day, to come alongside him and interpret the dream for him. And they said, sure, we can do that. Tell us the dream. And he said, no, you tell me the dream, and then you tell me what it means. <laughs> they said, nobody can do that. In fact, they said, no one can reveal it to the king but the gods, and they don't live among us. <laughs> and so Nebuchadnezzar said, fine, I'll kill all of you. That's where Daniel steps in, and listen to what he says. He says, I cannot interpret your dream, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. In other words, if you want to know real truth, then you've got to turn to the real God. That's the only place you're going to find it. Real truth comes from a sovereign God, and God graciously directs us through his word. That's where real truth is revealed. If you want to know God's truth, then look at God's word. That's where he's placed it. All scripture is inspired by God, is profitable for, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, so that every one of us can be equipped and adequate for every good work. Real truth is found in God's word and it's revealed by God's spirit. You see, when Daniel went to answer to Pharaoh, he didn't depend on his own abilities. He, was, he knew the dream because the spirit of God spoke to his heart. In the very same way, these are just words on a page. They mean absolutely nothing 
unless the Spirit of God is at work in your heart, helping you understand the truths of God as they have been revealed. We are just as dependent upon the Spirit of God for understanding this truth as Daniel was in understanding that dream. And apart from the Spirit, we are blind to God's truth. Real truth is found in God's Word through God's Spirit among God's people. There is no such thing as an independent revelation from God, something that He tells you that nobody else has ever heard of before and there's no one else to confirm it. doesn't exist, not throughout the history of the Bible and not to this day. If we don't actively pursue truth, we will believe lies. God created the church, the body of Christ, to affirm the truth that He has revealed. We are interdependent upon one another. It's a part of God's design, and we are mutually dependent upon God, also a part of God's design. Every day, we encounter fake news. Every day, we are surrounded by compromise. If we want to live faithfully for Christ in a fallen world, then we must trust God more than we trust ourselves. We must rely on Him more than the wisdom of this world. If we don't actively pursue truth, we will believe lies. There's no neutral ground. And the Bible's clear on this too. Just don't take my word for it. Take his word for it. He says that any given time, there's one of two things happening. You are either being conformed by the world or being transformed by the word. You're being conformed by the fake news of the world or you're being transformed by a truth that produces life. One of the two is taking place. It's just a matter of what you're investing in and what you're inviting in. And that's what James is trying to call us to. Don't play a religious game. Don't live with a divided heart, professing to follow Christ and then living a worldly life. Be convinced. Be convinced down in the core of your being that the will of God is the best possible outcome for your life. Don't let doubt convince you that there's a better way. Let God show you everything He's created you to be. And it's awesome. It's beautiful. It's redemptive. And it brings Him glory and honor and praise. And that should be true in every one of our lives. So that like those Christians who fled from Jerusalem, when they went out into the world, they took the witness for Christ with them. The same is true for us. We should do the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you for not leaving us to ourselves. Oh, what a gracious God you are. That you don't require us to be wise in our own means. Strong in our own means. But we are wise because of the wisdom you provide. We are strong because of the truth that you reveal. We endure because you are faithful. You alone are worthy of our praise. You alone deserve our undivided devotion. And Lord, that's my prayer, that if any of us walks away with anything today, that we look at such a great and awesome God, and we are compelled to live a life of undivided loyalty to you. Trusting you. Believing you. Committing ourselves to you. Believing that your will is the best possible outcome for our life. Because you're good. You give generously and without reproach. 
We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a good day.